And so as we close this teaching chapter on spiritual conflict, what I want us to do is I want us to start with a common problem and I want to end with then a common opportunity. A couple of quotes we want to read from as we engage them. The first is not a new quote. I've, I've, read, I've read this one before. But this is our current problem, I believe, in 2021. Although part of the church pays lip service to the reality of sin and worldliness. Tuck worldliness for a second, because we'll define that. Although part of the church pays lip service to the reality of sin and worldliness, even demonic agents, it seems to me much of the church's warfare today is fought by blindfolded soldiers who can't see the forces that are ranged against them, who are buffeted by invisible opponents and respond by striking one another. This is a summarization of our common problem that we have as followers of Christ, that we are in spiritual conflict. And David Wells, who happens to be the superintendent of the Assemblies of Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, says this, that worldliness is this, it is whatever makes righteousness look weird and sin look normal. That's a definition of worldliness. Whatever makes righteousness look weird and sin then is normalized. I think it's a healthy understanding of it. And so we started this summer series or being rooted, the summer teaching series, being rooted in the love of God. Aren't you glad that God is love? That he doesn't just choose love, that he is love? And so what this means is that though we may not feel it at times, though we may not understand it at other times, that God right now is being patient towards us. He's being kind toward us. He's bearing things about us and with us. He's believing the best about us. He's inviting you and I to abide and endure in him. And he is celebrating as the truth of his word brings freedom to our hearts and lives. And because God is love, there is never a time where God is not being loving toward us. Now, if God's motive is love, this is a little bit of a review of what we've done this summer. And if God's motive is love, what is Satan's? And therefore, then all demonic activity in life. Well, Satan or unclean spirits have a singular objective towards your life, and that is to lead us in rebellion against God, so therefore against love, which leads us always into a worst state progression, starting with theft and moving to eternal separation from God. Charles Kraft says this, that Satan is anti-love. He is anti-God, and he is anti-everything God does and stands for. He hates God, and he uses every means at his disposal to thwart God's activity, especially his loving relationship with us. Now, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 10, and this is where we get a worse state progression. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I'm going to read it again. The thief comes only... This is the only motive, this is the only reason why the presence of darkness exists, whether it's in our lives, our family, our neighborhood, our city, our nation, whatever it happens to be, or our world. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, 
and to ultimately destroy. Now, one of the deceptions is this, that you and I, when we look at our lives, we may in a moment say, well, I can't see what's being taken. I can't see what's being killed. And I can't see what's being destroyed. My life's pretty good right now. And so Jesus is speaking both in a moment, but he's also speaking prophetically. Because destroy doesn't just mean the destruction of earthly relationships, though it can include that. It doesn't just mean the destruction, perhaps, of your finances or of this or of that. Ultimately, to be destroyed is to be separated from God as creator. It is to be separated from the one who created you to be in fellowship not just with one another, but also with him. So it is both an earthly thing and an eternal proclamation or prophetic word that Jesus is articulating. And so sometimes this spiritual conflict that we've been talking about all summer, sometimes it happens within us. And those are strongholds. Every one of us maybe have gone through seasons or are in one now where I'm doing what I don't want to do and the very things that I want to do, I can't seem to get there. I can't seem to break free. I can't seem to engage these disciplines. I can't seem to engage or walk in these ways. But over here, this seems to be present and prevalent in my life. Well, it could be. It could be a lot of different things. And one of those things that we've looked at this summer is it also could be a spiritual stronghold. But other times, though, spiritual conflict is not just happening in our hearts, though it happens there. It can be happening around us. And we're going to read a scripture in a moment. And that's called spiritual warfare. And so here's the truth that we want you to tuck into your heart. The moment you were born, you were born onto a battlefield, whether you feel it or not, whether you want to be or not. Every human that's born was born onto a battlefield. Now, this battlefield is never against others. It is never against others. It is never against others. I'm going to say it again because we're in an election. It is never against others, but it is always against powers and principalities. And here's what they're tempting us to choose. Powers and principalities and rulers of darkness tempt us to choose on earth as it is in hell. And I use hell specifically, once again, to define separation from God. Separation from God's presence, separation from God's intent, separation from how the creator designed something and someone to function. Hell on earth is always a separation from love. It's a separation from God. Rather than on earth as it is in heaven, which is often this unifying with God's original intent and purpose. C.S. Lewis said this when speaking about on earth as it is in hell. Here's what C.S. Lewis said, and I think it's insightful. It does not matter how small the sins are provided, but that their cumulative effect is to edge the man or edge the person away from the light and out into nothing. C.S. Lewis defines darkness often as just nothingness. It is void of anything good, holy, and pure. So in that way, murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Obviously, the screw tape letters were written a little while ago. He's talking about gambling, okay? So murder is no better than gambling if gambling can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell, the safest road to separation from God is the gradual one. It is the gentle slope. It is soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. C.S. Lewis. Now, here's the good news. The good news is God is always working in our lives to make lost, found, broken, 
hold, those who are in bondage, absolutely set free. God is always working. Here's what I want you to know. If anyone here, whether it's here or at home, if you have someone who doesn't know Jesus, here's what I want you to know. That is on God's heart. That is on God's mind. When you're praying, it's already on his heart and it's always on his mind. When you forget about it, he never does. When you sleep, he never sleeps. It is always on his heart. It is always on his mind. You never have to pray, God, are you working in this person's life, in this person's circumstance, in this person's situation to bring them to a knowledge of you? You can trust. It doesn't matter what you see. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter how bleak it looks. You need to know that all of all the angels of heaven and, of course, the Father, Son, and Spirit are working to make lost people found people, that those who have wandered away from home returning to home. And so God is always doing this. God is always, as well, not only bringing lost people found, but found people to be free in Christ. Because when we're free in Christ, then we become part of that mission that sees lost people found. We are sent out on mission. This is what God is always doing. So God, right now, in my life, in your life, in our lives, he is working so that you and I can be set free, that we can be more free, that strongholds can be exposed, that things in our hearts and lives that we're choosing that will bear no good fruit, that he is revealing those things so that we can turn our affections towards him and away from these things to be more like him. Because the solution to every problem in the world is Jesus. The solution to everything that we're going through is being more like Jesus. Church, hear this with both ears and your whole heart. The vision of church is Jesus and everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. I don't care how passionate we are in a season about something else. And there are seasons that we need to talk about these other things. But if these other things replace the, that the vision is Jesus, they are things called idols. They are graven images. They are elevating in their purpose. So I'm not saying they have no relevance, but they don't have the central vision. It's why our identities, our secondary identities are important. And we've listed that in the series, but they never, ever, ever override our primary identity, which I'll touch on in just a moment. And so again, as I've said a few times, we're born on a battlefield. And so we experience conflict, spiritual conflict. And so I want to read one scripture. And then I want to end our series together this summer with just talking about five ingredients. These are not five steps. These are five ingredients. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to open your heart as we go through these five ingredients because they convict me. They challenge me first and foremost, and they challenge me in the first service, and they're going to challenge me again today. These five ingredients. I want you to think about your own heart and life before the Lord and let the Lord speak to you about these, not just these steps, these ingredients. Here's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. It says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes or the plans or the tactics of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Once again, people aren't our problem. But against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So that's both stronghold here and also spiritual warfare here. Therefore, because this is true, whether you believe it or not, because this is reality, take up the whole armor of God that you be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Let me pause here in the text. This word peace here is beautiful. This word peace is not merely the absence of conflict. It's greater than that. The word peace here is the word shalom. The shalom of God is not just something that you and I feel and then don't feel. There's lots of times that you may not feel at peace, but peace before God is positional not emotional. The shalom of God is absolutely critical. And here's what it is. The gospel is a gospel of peace that is first vertical, then it must be horizontal. And here's why it's important, as Paul is saying. It starts with truth, the realization that I can't save myself. Then it moves towards his breastplate of righteousness. Well, whose righteousness? Surely it's not mine and surely isn't yours. It is the righteousness that we have imputed onto us by the work of Christ on the cross plus nothing, okay? It is Christ's righteousness. Having shoes for your feet then, put on with the readiness, with the gospel of peace, the gospel of shalom that we experience being right, put in positionally in right standing with God through the work of the cross. And then horizontally, we work not for peace, but from peace. And peace should be flowing from our hearts and lives in the world in which we live. It's the essence of the gospel. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts or arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Now, the sword of the spirit is the only offensive weapon in the whole list. You say, well, don't I, don't I, need, any, don't I need more offensive things in my life? No, the word of God is forever established. Doesn't matter what we, our opinion of it is. It is forever, forever established in heaven. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you and I surrender our hearts to Jesus, John said, that is the word that became flesh. And so you and I, all we need, when Jesus was tempted 40 days and 40 nights, he didn't need anything other than it is written. The word of God is the only offensive weapon that you and I need, which means as followers of Jesus, we can put down some inferior weapons that we think we need that we don't actually need. You with me? Okay. That just, I said you with me so I could actually take a breath. I don't think I took a breath since we started. <laughs> which is the word of God. Praying, it says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Pause. I'm going to pause again here and then we're going to dive into our first, first one. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer. Everybody say all prayer. If you're in the chat, you just type in all prayer. So I know you're right with me. All prayer. That means short prayers and long prayers. Profound prayers and like, that's it, prayers. There's no such thing. There is no such thing as a powerless prayer. The enemy will always whisper to your ear, like, well, when that person prays, that's like really powerful. Then when I pray over here, it's kind of like, meh. There is no such thing as a powerless prayer. The only powerless prayer is the prayer that's never prayed, which is why the assault on our lives is always to be prayerless, which therefore means that we are prideful believing that we can somehow walk out this journey of spiritual conflict and following Jesus without doing what Jesus himself did. Which brings me to my very first ingredient that I want you to open your heart to without guilt, shame, or anything else. It is the ingredient this. Church, make prayer a practice. Notice I said a practice. It means you can get better at it. You can grow in it. 
You can figure out the difference maybe from like warfare prayer to like intercessory prayer to you can even just have like personal prayer and you can pray in the Holy Spirit. If you've been baptized in the Spirit and you have the spiritual gift of tongues. If you don't, you can pray with your natural language, whether it's English, French, Spanish, Russian, Ukrainian. Here's the beautiful thing. God speaks every language and he can actually even interpret sighs and groans. This is the beauty of the Holy Spirit. In fact, some of our deepest prayers can't even be articulated with words, just groans from our heart, but the Holy Spirit knows what that is. Make prayer a practice. This is how Jesus flourished in the world. And as his followers, let's follow his example. It is vitally important to recognize that the the North American church, by all accounts and data, is a prayerless church. And so one of the realities is that the storm of the pandemic that we have seen wash over the church in this season is it has surfaced that you and I must repent. We must confess. We must open up our hearts. And we must, as we've been doing all summer, engage prayer walking, engage just praying one with another. We have all church prayer every single month. Here's the beautiful thing. You can pick up a book on prayer. You can take a course on prayer. Those are wonderful things to do. But here's what I have personally found. There is no substitute. There is just no substitute than putting yourself in in environments where people have made a practice of prayer in their life and just... Just get around them and watch what they do. Watch how they pray. And all of a sudden, you're going to begin to grow, and you're not even going to know where the mentorship has come from. You're just going to begin to engage it. So make this prayer a practice in your life. In prayer, we give God room to move in a situation, our lives, or a circumstance. At the very least, when you make prayer a practice, we make room for him to move in our own hearts, which is what we always need. Here's one of the reasons why oftentimes we don't want to pray. Here's what I have found. As we said just a moment ago, again, God is unchanging because he's perfect. He doesn't need to change. Jesus doesn't need to change. He doesn't have to get better. He's perfect exactly the way he is. But you and I are imperfect. Therefore, we need to change. And here's one of the reasons why I resisted prayer or in some seasons let it drop down my priority list. Here's why. Because I know the moment I go to prayer, an unchanging God is going to to begin to work on an imperfect me. And I want him to work on imperfect you. This is the struggle of my life. I want him to work on them and those people and especially you. You, you, you. I want him to work on you. And all of a sudden, God begins to work on me. Why? Because God is love. And he is working to set us free. Okay? So make prayer a practice. And don't diminish what it looks like. Start with one minute a day. Start with one word a day and let it begin to grow from there. And here's all I would say with prayer. My one recommendation to you, don't ever let prayer become performance. That's all. Don't let it become a performance. Don't let it become a performance in private and don't let it become a performance in public. Let prayer be honest from your heart and grow in it. All right, pray, just pray, just pray. Just pray every single day. Ingredient number two, make position a priority. Make position. Now, and as I say this, here's what I'm not saying. Make your position on the vaccine a priority. Make your position on politics a priority. No, have positions, but that's not what I'm referring to. I'm actually referring to something that's much more powerful and important than this. You and I need to reject the lies that our identity is rooted in performance, popularity, what we possess, We must embrace that our identity is first positional. 
that you or I, the moment we surrender our hearts to Jesus, the moment we turn from sin and we turn to the Son of God, the moment we confess our sins, that you and I are positionally in Christ from that very defining moment in our hearts and lives. Here's a good example that we have taught through. Lori and I have four children. Our oldest is Treff and our youngest is Allie. And then in the middle, you have Emma and you have Parker. Obviously, all of them were born at different times. Well, I shouldn't say obviously because some people are born, you know, four, you know, I got triplets. I almost forgot, I forgot the quad word there. My brain was like a little hamster going like, what's that word? What's that word? And you just didn't help me at all. <laughs> but all I'm simply trying to say is this. Treff, our oldest, was no more positionally in our family than when our youngest, Ali, was conceived and born. The moment she was born, the moment she was conceived and then born, she was a boucher. Not any more than Treff was. Now, he has more experience of what it means to be a boucher. She has none on day one. He has more experience than she does. Why do I surface this? Here's why. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, you are positioned as a son or a daughter of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that you are spiritually mature, but what it means is that you have all authority given to you to resist the work of darkness, to push it back, because Satan will lie to you that, oh, because you don't know this, because you don't know all 66 chapters of the Bible, you don't even know the order of the New Testament and the Old Testament. When I said a moment ago, Paul, you thought I was talking about a friend. You had no idea he was even a guy in the New Testament that wrote like a third of it. Here's what is absolutely beautiful. Beautiful, and this is what I think is so spectacular. And the enemy lies to us again and again and again. And it is this. Because you're not free in this area, you're not free in any area. You need to reject that in Jesus' name. Because the moment you gave your life to Christ, you are seated and you are positioned in Christ. You're a part of the family. You're not more part of the family four or eight years later. You are part of the family here. And Erwin McManus preached a beautiful sermon about 15 years ago. And it's called The Barbarians of Christ. And it's a beautiful sermon. I've never forgot it. And here's why that there is something about happens in the heart of a follower of Jesus who was lost and then they become found the very first thing that someone who is genuinely lost and then they become found in Christ the first thing that they become is a barbarian and here's what it means they are so passionate about what they have been saved from and to who they have been saved to but yet they don't have a lot of spiritual maturity yet so they go out into the world and they preach all about Noah in the lion's den and here's the extraordinary thing some of you are going, wait, 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 whoa, 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 that's not the story. I know that's not the story, but here's what's incredible. Because of who they are in Christ, people come to Jesus when they tell the story of Noah and the lion's den. They're barbarians, and then yes, they have to grow into spiritual maturity, yes. But here's what I would rather. I would rather you be a positional barbarian in Christ than a perfectly polished Christian that never opens your mouth. That has been forgot, that we forget. We forget the longer we're in faith, the greater temptation for all of us is the longer we're in faith. It's, oh, I figured that out. I understand that. I know this. I know that. Here's what is true. Position doesn't equal maturity. Just because I'm the lead pastor of the church doesn't even mean I'm the most spiritual one in the room. There's people that are spiritually further along. It's just a positional thing that we have to understand. Sometimes I walk into rooms or a prayer meeting or whatever, and there are those with greater spiritual maturity. Now, my head may have positional authority when I walk in, but it's not positioned this way. It's this way. Which leads me to this next one, is make humility your posture. Learn from other people. 
You will only grow old the moment you stop being humble to learn from others. Be humble. Once again, when I walk into a room, I understand what my responsibility is here at Life Center, but when I walk back into the booth back there, all I see are flashing buttons and lights. You don't want me back there at all or nothing up here will work. Well, the same is true in lots of different areas. We have to be humble. Our posture needs to be humble. Let me say this in love. I am not disappointed that followers of Jesus have varying political perspectives. I'm not. I think that's okay. I'm not disappointed that followers of Jesus have various positions on the pandemic. I'm not disappointed by that. But I sure am disappointed by our posture. On what side? Just the framing of the question. Here's all I know. If I'm not that, at least, if step A is that I'm not just even respectful to listen, and I may disagree, but how I disagree matters. Watch this jaw-dropping example from the apostle, and here's that guy again. I mentioned a few minutes ago, Paul, not my friend, wrote a third of the New Testament, the apostle Paul. There was a church named Ephesus. And they read this. This is the lineage of leadership that we need to require again. This is the lineage of our faith. And this convicts me and simultaneously inspires me to a higher call with my posture. Here's what he says. I'm sorry, not Ephesus. I'm in Philippians. Sorry, not Ephesus. Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to him? He's been put in prison for preaching the gospel of Christ. That's what's happened to him. And he's saying, well, yeah, that's unjust, but it's advancing the gospel. And it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, imperial guard, and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's for the gospel. That's Philippians chapter 1, 12 and 13. Now 15 to 18 says, listen to this. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Those are not good motives. Some are envious of how God is using me and that's why they're preaching Christ. Some are in competition with me trying to be better for me and that's why they're preaching Christ. He says, but others do it from goodwill. Their posture is different. The latter, if they're doing it from goodwill, they're doing it out of love, knowing that I'm put here in prison simply because I am preaching and defending the gospel. The former, though, those who are doing an envy and rivalry, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. That's a bad day when people are using your imprisonment for their own point. But here's what he says. What then? Only that in every way, whether it is in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. That is a man who is dead to himself. 
What then? Those people who were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, envy, and rivalry? What then? All I'm saying is, if people are coming to Christ, if they're moving from lost to found, I'm not saying this is all good and this is okay, but Paul is saying at the bottom line, if Jesus is moving over here and Jesus is moving over here, if Jesus is moving in this camp and Jesus is moving in this camp, here's all I'm saying. All I'm saying is I just celebrate what Jesus is doing. Now together as a church, let's figure this out and let's grow up. But my posture is different. Number four, ingredients. Make conviction, not condemnation, your friend. Make conviction, not condemnation, your friend. There is a lie from the pit of hell in 2021 that is this. If it makes me feel bad, it's bad. If it makes me feel bad, it's always bad. In Jesus' name, no. Conviction makes you feel bad. Not because you're not guilty, because you are guilty. Conviction and condemnation feel identical at the moment they touch our hearts. Identical. So don't be so quick to dismiss a feeling of guilt or feeling bad as always being bad. Sometimes the love of God initially makes us feel bad. Never feeling diminished or destroyed, but we feel bad. Ah! Now, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so conviction and condemnation, initially, they make us grieve. They make us feel guilty. But only conviction is transformative in our lives. How do I know which one I am rooting in? Only conviction is transformative. In other words, only conviction will lead you from guilt to forgiveness, from death to life, from feeling bad to seeing the glorious freedom that you have in Christ, receiving it from the ugly part of like, ah, I don't want to confess, I'm awkward, I feel all those things, to confessing it and being absolutely set free as you walk in the light. You move from lost to found. So conviction is highly, it's, 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 it's high definition clarity. It is helpful. It is hopeful. Conviction is rooted in love, never hate. It is clear, as I said a moment ago, it's not hazy. God loves you. He wants the best for you. And so he will bring conviction into your life to convince you that there is a better way, that there is some better way in which you need to be living. And here's what I want you to know. Conviction is the native tongue of our Holy Spirit, of the precious Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit says that when, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes he's going to convict you of truth. He's going to convict you and then he's going to remind you of everything that I said and taught. Two important things really important to keep in order. When the Holy Spirit comes he convicts us of what is true but then we're going oh my gosh now I feel bad. Now I feel dirty. Now I feel gross. Now I feel like I can't do it. No. That's all the language of condemnation which is why he reminds us of everything that Jesus said who we are, what Christ can do in us, what Christ has done for us. And then we embrace those things that you and I can walk more like Jesus. You see, condemnation, here's the danger of it. It is hazy-based shame. It is hateful. It is hopeless. It brings the sense that you are a lost cause, that you are chained forever to your sins, that you will never change, that God doesn't care about you, that condemnation is the native tongue of Satan, the liar. Condemnation is 
half-truth, that's all it is. It is defining your life by what you've done, and it just ignores what Jesus has done. How do you know right now in this moment if you are in condemnation or conviction? Well, if I feel bad, then it must be condemnation. Not so quick. Here's what you need to ask. Is what I feel and then believe, is it leading to transformation in my heart and life? Conviction will always lead you to transformation. Condemnation will always keep you precisely right where you are. It's really important to understand the two different things. And I conclude here. Make darkness our target. As I shared when we began our talk, I started with our current problem, and I'll read it again. Although part of the church pays lip service to the reality of sin and even worldliness, Things that are righteous look weird and things that are sinful look normal. Even demonic agents, it seems to me that much of the church's warfare today is fought by blindfolded soldiers who can't see the forces raged against them, who are buffeted by invisible opponents and respond by striking one another. Richard Lovelace. Now let me respond to this very real problem, our current problem, using the words then of another quote of Dean Sherman, presenting, I think, a clarified common opportunity even though it's pretty lofty. Here's what he says. If we could only redirect our combat towards the powers of darkness, if we could harness the emotions and energy spent fighting one another and direct them towards our common enemy, we would see widespread change. We could see in our generation the total collapse of a satanic empire that we've allowed to operate freely for too long. If each of us were determined never to fight another human being as long as we lived, Satan would tremble. We could do to him what we have been doing to one another for centuries. I know it's lofty, church. I know it's lofty. I know it feels like it's impossible. But we serve the God of the impossible. I know it feels beyond us because it actually is. It is something that only Christ can do in us. It is a work of the spirit, not a work of the flesh. To seize this common opportunity, next Sunday we are going to start a brand new teaching chapter at Life Center called Build Your House. Life Center, this pandemic season isn't a marathon. We thought it was. It isn't. It's a triathlon. That's what it is. Just when you feel like you're done one part of it, you know, a marathon is only a run, although a long one. <laughs> a triathlon is a marathon plus a bike ride and a little swim, and that is being hyperbolic. So while the storm is revealing, and while it isn't over yet, it is time to begin some rebuilding. And so this week we celebrated with water baptism. Next week we are ministering to kids and students and we look forward to telling you how we're going to do this to do it in the safest manner possible. Starting next Sunday we are going to reintroduce in-person communion because we don't just need to gather face-to-face, -face. we need to gather heart-to-heart. -heart. For those of you here and those of you at home, in particular those of you at home, thank you so much for joining with us. I understand there's lots. But my prayer, my prayer for those of you at home is we're going to do, do everything to be as safe as we can. 
Push us to open multiple services more. Push us to grow. Because here's my fear. My fear is there's certain things that we're only going to work out heart to heart, face to face. And so I get screens and I love technology and I, and I appreciate it and I understand it. But push us, church, to regather in greater numbers with greater services. Together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we posture our hearts before you, thanking you that we come before your, bold, your throne of grace boldly, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. We thank you that we are sons and daughters, not because of our gifts and talents, but because you're of your extraordinary love. Lord, we realize that we were born on a battlefield. And Father, perhaps we have been blindly battering one another, and that needs to stop. Perhaps, Father, you, we, we have been living in condemnation and not welcoming conviction. All I say, Lord, is as you touch every heart, as you help each of us be more like you, may we be people who help rebuild your house for such a time as this. Give us grace with those we disagree. Give us wisdom where we're wounded. And above all, confine us and constrain us to the narrow road when the broad one looks easier and it looks pretty good. Keep us constrained on the only road that leads to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd like prayer for anything starting next week, I think we're returning in-person prayer next Sunday too. But until next Sunday, we're going to dismiss from the front, the back to the front. And those of you online, thank you for joining us. May Jesus bless you and may he keep you. Thank you.